Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Greater Greener Georgia. I'm Miles. And I'm Alexis. And this week we're bringing you part two in our municipal election series. That's right. And this week we're going to be talking about what early voting is all about. And we also got a chance to interview with Liliana Bakhtiari, a candidate for Atlanta City Council. We had a great conversation with her. But first, let's get into what early voting is all about. If you were paying attention at all during the 2020 election, you've probably heard a lot about early voting. It's basically when polling places in every county are open for certain days and weeks leading up to an election so that people can cast their ballots before election day. This makes voting a lot more accessible and easy to do because not everyone has the time on the actual day of an election, which is usually a Tuesday, to just go take an hour and go vote. And it also often takes way more than an hour, like we've seen with these crazy lines in Georgia in the past election. So Alexis, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of early voting and, um, you know, mail-in voting and the absentee ballot. By the late 1980s, Texas had become the first state to offer early in-person voting. In 2000, Oregon became the first all-vote-by-mail state after a citizen's initiative garnered 70% approval in 1998. Washington did the same in 2011, and Colorado did in 2013. At the founding of America... Voting was held over several days so that rural voters could have ample time to travel to town to cast their ballots. They had to, like, take a horse and buggy to get to the courthouse (laughs) to cast their ballot. The first presidential election started on December 15th, 1788, and ended almost a month later on January 10th, 1789. It wasn't until 1845 that Congress formally adopted a national election day, the Tuesday after the first Monday in November. So it kind of seems like we already had early voting in place in the 1700s, and then it almost went away and was replaced by mail-in voting. And then mail-in voting, they started calling early voting uh, in-person absentee voting, and it's now just kind of been changed to the terminology of early voting. So there's always been a way to vote before the actual election day, um, which is really good because, like we were saying before, not everyone always has the time to actually go in in in-person on that exact day. Yeah, exactly, and it's... It's, it's again, we've said it a couple of times, but election day is actually the last day to vote. So it's um, a, an interesting thing that not everybody knows about, but is definitely good to keep in mind. The, um, the federal law setting a uniform day of voting still stands. In 2001, challenge to Oregon's no excuse absentee voting, a federal court ruled that the election must be consummated on election day. As long as election officials don't count votes until election day, early voting is legal. Yeah, so basically people were starting to get upset that voting was happening before the actual election day, but this uh, ruling from the court decided that as long as votes aren't actually counted and made public before election day, technically there's still only one election day because, you know, I understand it. If people start seeing the results before the actual election, that could sway their opinion if they haven't voted yet. But as long as... It's never actually counted and made public until Election Day. It's still legal, according to the court. Yeah, and fewer people voting on Election Day means shorter lines and better voting experience for voters, which I think is very important. A voting experience means people are going to come back 
and do it again and again and, and, and also reach municipal elections, not just the quote unquote big election every four years for president. So next up, we have an awesome interview with Liliana Bakhtiari, who's running for District 5 of Atlanta City Council. And she has some great plans for her seat if and when she gets elected. And just a little bit of background, Liliana grew up in Edgewood and began organizing in the community from a very young age. By the time she started school at Georgia State University, she was investing her time in student-led coalitions and causes, such as the Georgia Dreamers Program and Affordable Education. She moved on to fight for awareness surrounding gentrification, predatory lending, and the growing wealth gap in Atlanta before first running for office in 2017. If elected, she could be one of the first out queer Muslim women to hold public office in the United States. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. I'm Liliana Bakhtiari. Uh, I am a candidate for Atlanta City Council District 5, which is predominantly Southeast Atlanta. Um, it's actually one of the only, I think we are the only district with like that is majority DeKalb over Fulton. Um, but my entire background is in crisis relief and mutual aid work and nonprofit work. For those who don't know me, um, I come from an immigrant refugee household. My father escaped here in 82, fleeing Iran after fighting for fair, free democratic elections there. My mom is also Iranian, but was born here. So they actually met after he'd escaped into the country. She actually saved him from being deported. They had met three months after he escaped here and got married a month later. So I was raised working in shelters in Atlanta. I started working in shelters when I was about five, doing refugee resettlement. Uh, my dad worked to open up a pharmacy right across from the Auburn Curb Market. Um, it's next to the old Butler Street YMCA, which was like the heart of a lot of homelessness and people struggling, as you can still very well see today because it's just outside of Grady. I very much grew, grew up understanding, like working at my dad's pharmacy, seeing some of the worst drug and sex trafficking happening on Piedmont before Georgia State developed it. So I grew up seeing Atlanta change. And when I turned 18 and moved into the city to go to Georgia State, um, for anyone who's from a immigrant Muslim Middle Eastern household, you know that it's pretty much unheard of for a woman to leave the house. Like growing up, like most of my cousins, a lot of them still live at home. Um, and so I was the first girl to basically leave our family and try to go downtown. That was considered, um, we'll say this, it was considered very unseemly behavior. So I was cut off and lived out of my car on an, and uh, put myself through school, lived on people's sofas for the first five years of living in the city. It was very unstable. Um, I was frequently cut off from my family. Um, I had to work four or five, six jobs at a time trying to make ends meet. I had to learn how to community build because if I hadn't, uh, my life would have been a lot worse off. So thankfully there were other students that helped take care of me. And a lot of the neighborhoods actually in district five took care of me. You seem like you are so already deeply ingrained in this community. And so have you ever held public office before? Is this your first time running? Um, no, it is my, I have not held public office before. It's my second time running, unless you count that time I ran for vice president in fourth grade. I lost. <laughs> my slogan was vote for me, Lily B. You That's know. a perfect, I don't know how you lost. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was the weird brown Middle Eastern kid in a school of like all white students. That's how mm -hmm. I lost. Um, no, it was, she was, she was very popular and very sweet, but <laughs> I ran in 2017. Um, and I actually ran uh, right after the Muslim ban ended up happening. Um, I challenged a 16-year incumbent. Um, and my, my reason for running was not so much about the incumbent. It was about the fact that after the presidential election, there was such an extreme level of apathy and defeat. And as we all know, mutual aid work and local politics impact our lives much more than federal office does. But the media tends to make 
it all about what's happening on a congressional and presidential level. Um, and people don't pay attention to their local DAs, to their judges, to their local representatives, to the municipal government. It just doesn't happen. And my fear was because of my family being Iranian, being Muslim and being um, mostly visa and green card holders. My fear was what would end up happening to them when the Muslim ban went through. What kept flashing through my head and most some people would say this extreme. I don't. But what kept flashing through my head was, you know, during the Japanese American war when we learn in school that Japanese Americans that were U.S. citizens were also rounded up and like put into these like detention centers, essentially, because people were so afraid. And to some people, that would be an extreme thought. To me, it wasn't because I grew up during and I grew up in Stone Mountain during 9-11. And it was just this fear that I wouldn't be able to protect my family in any way, shape or form or my community. It ended up becoming really big because it turned out I was the first out queer Muslim person to run in the country. I didn't know that until Teen Vogue posted it. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing I knew, I was getting called by Channel 11. And now this had run with it. Glamour Magazine had run with it. Uh, BuzzFeed was running with it. So it just like started making headlines. And then mm-hmm. I got accused of running a national campaign, even though we were sending out press releases to local papers here every week. But it was like, it, it was great. And it was groundbreaking, but it was um, also very hostile. I was met with a lot of hostility. I'm uh, sure. And um I got a lot of calls from men telling me what a disappointment and disgrace I was. I mean, most governments, but I would say Atlanta is great at making promises that they don't intend on keeping, or they at least don't plan it out very well. I'm going to speak very honestly <laughs> about this. Um, we were supposed to have an, I mean, we signed on to the, to the, to the green energy plan to go completely, to be completely, you know, clean energy by 2035. We were supposed to have an electrified fleet, an entirely electrified fleet this by this year. I think we're only up to like 60 vehicles. Our big celebration this year was that, you know, we retired six diesel buses from MARTA. Um, These are not, these are great, but they're not tremendous acts of of clean energy. This is not going to Mm -hmm. get us where we need to go. In fact, I think in 2020, Atlanta experienced um, the second highest, I want to say like heat growth. We are the second hottest city in the country as far as Mm -hmm. like temperature, um, as far as experiencing higher temperatures. Um, and we've become susceptible to heat waves, to drought, to flooding, to hurricanes, increasingly susceptible to things like tornadoes. We are going to become a massive, Atlanta is on the verge of becoming a massive uh, climate refugee city, especially in the 2030s. We're going to see increased flooding on the West Coast, and it's just going to get worse and worse. I would say that my approach is twofold, um, addressing both climate change mitigation and I would say adaptation strategies as far as mitigation strategies go. Uh, we must reduce our carbon footprint. And in order to achieve this, we must pr- reduce our reliance on Georgia power, make solar more accessible for homeowners at all in- of all income levels, increase our EV infrastructure throughout the city, and reduce our reliance on cars through bold improvements to our public transportation system. And additionally, I would like to work with Invest Atlanta to establish new building standards that ensure that retrofits to existing infrastructure, as well as new infrastructures reflective and low carbon emitting. Switching gears again a little bit, still environmental, but a little bit more political. Um, On our podcast with like GCV and just like in our work, we've all been following the Stop Cop City campaign. And we're pretty disappointed with how the Atlanta City Council voted a few weeks ago. And I'm just curious what you what your opinions are on that outcome and how you would have handled the situation had you already been in city council um, during that vote and that entire process. So I've been working, I've been going to the old old Atlanta prison farm forever. Most of us who've grown up in Atlanta have always gone there. It's great for hiking. It's, you know, technically not legal to do it, but we all do. Um, 
because it's beautiful and it's a part of our history. And I've, I've been working on the preserve, the preserve the old land of uh, prison farm campaign and been a fan of it and a supporter of it for over six years. Um, now to find out that this has been an under the table conversation for six years, even though the city paid for plans, even though we talked about turning this into a space that we wanted to conserve, preserve, uh, restore and, and, you know, eradicate of invasive species to make a healthy thriving forest, all of these things to find out that that it feels like it was an absolute front to the, to the people of Atlanta and to conservationists and that these plans were put out and yet at the same time under the table conversations were happening about turning this property into a training facility. Our district is changing, you know, really fast development and gentrification and from you growing up in the area, like how has, how have you seen that affecting, you know, your potential constituents and, um, you know, people living in the area that have been there for a really long time? Um, you know, how do you see that changing? Well, we used to be massively, um, we were a majority black district for a very long time. Reynoldstown was the first neighborhood established by freed slaves. Kirkwood was a historically black neighborhood after white flight took place, as we know, like in the sixties. Um, these were really strong minority driven neighborhoods and we are now plurality white district. So the displacement over the last like four to eight years of our black population is like over 40%. District five is actually now the youngest district in the city. And um, our largest voting block is 32 to like 45, which is also, I mean, which is pretty cool. It's great, but it's been at the displacement of legacy homeowners, seniors, and a lot of our um, BIPOC population. So that's probably been the biggest thing I've seen is the displacement of longtime um, homeowners, um, black legacy homeowners. To me, it always feels that Atlanta is more, Atlanta leadership is more concerned with turning the civil rights movement into a tourist attraction rather than protecting the people that made it everything that it is. Council will always say things like the market, the market, the market drives all these things, blah, blah, blah. We can't stop it. That's not true. Um, there are plenty of things that can be done to mitigate types of change because change is going to happen. We want there to be development. We do want there to be more conserve intentional conservation zones. And because most of our green space and canopy sits on people's land. It sits in backyards. It's not intentional unless we actually are abysmally rated on parks and green space. We only allocate 2% of our, you know, two point something billion dollar budget to parks and rec, which is ridiculous. Um, but there are no, there has been no effort in the city, in my opinion, to do things around affordable housing. We saw what happened with the Beltline. We saw what, you know, you had Ryan Gravel, Kathy Woolard, and people like Nathaniel Smith working on with Friends of the Beltline and how Beltline partnerships came in about came in and pretty much crushed that concept, put in a sidewalk first rather than any type of affordable housing, green space, or uh, transit, and essentially completely derailed any plans we had to turn the city into an equitable, connected city. And so for anyone listening to our podcast, do you have a pitch for them about how anyone can get involved with your campaign in these last few weeks leading up to the election? Yes. So, you know, we're 13 days out. Um, oh, that's terrifying. So we're 13 days away from election day. Um, so one, obviously like, please vote early voting is currently taking place. It's going until October 29th. Um, and then election day is November 2nd, but there's, we made sure that there's a multitude of ways people can get involved. Obviously there's door knocking. If you want to come and join us and do that. 
if door knocking and talking to people is not your thing, I completely get it. We also have text banking that's being hosted by Working Families Party and a lot of our um, union partners because I've gotten all of their endorsements. There's also the opportunity for postcard writing. If you like talking to people but don't want to walk around or have, you know, contact with anyone, there's also phone banking. So there are plenty of ways to get involved. And of course, one of the best ways that you can help out is just like talk to five or six people. If you support this campaign, there is no better way for you to support or get involved than by using your voice. And of course, um, <laughs> sorry, my partner just walked up and bowed. give them your website. So you can learn about all of this at lilianaforatlanta.com. That's L-I-L-I-A-N-A-F-O-R Atlanta spelled out.com. And everything I just listed, all of those opportunities are listed there. Um, and of course, if you're able to donate, that's always awesome. But, you know, quite frankly, I would so much rather have you using your voice and coming out and learning more about the campaign and having your support in that way. Um, but you can, you can also reach me there. And for anybody who wants to give me a call, um, you can reach me at 404-644-2190, which I'm just putting my cell phone number out into the, out into the internet. So enjoy, <laughs> but you can always get in touch with us that way as well. Wow. She was really interesting to talk to and such a great interview. She's super knowledgeable about all these issues. Yeah, she is definitely running an impressive campaign. And make sure you get out and vote for your city council representative if you haven't already voted early or absentee. And if you haven't already, make sure to go back and listen to last week's episode to learn more about the municipal elections. And we'll be back next week with our last episode in this municipal election series. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>